very warm welcome to the Understanding Users podcast, brought to you by Researchable UX. It's great to have you with me. I'm your host, Mike Green. I'm a freelance user research lead and digital consultant based in the UK. Over the coming weeks, I'm going to be chatting to various digital experts who I've had the pleasure of working with in recent years. They're from various disciplines, including user research, UX design, development, and product management. And they'll even be a digital business owner or two. I'll be talking to them about how they came to be in their current roles, what they've learned along the way, and what advice they may have for others getting into the field. These are intended to be relaxed, informal chats with professionals who are keen to share their experiences. So sit back and enjoy. In this episode of Understanding Users, Jackie discusses the importance of always documenting things in the most impactful format to make sure they are seen by everyone, both in and beyond a service team. And remembering that not every user-centered problem can be solved immediately, or indeed at all, by a design team. She shares her thoughts on the merits of UK government digital service standards, both in creating usable constraints to design against, and in holding service teams publicly to account. And she talks of the pleasure of going to work when you know what you are doing is measurably helping people in their lives. Finally, she plays my three-card challenge to share her favorite UX tool, favorite technique, and a trend she hopes to see, or not see, more of in the future. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. So my guest this time is Jackie Brownlee, uh, and Jackie's a service designer, freelance service designer. Welcome, Jackie. It's great to have you on the show. It's great to be on the show. Thanks, Mike, for inviting me. To kick us off, it would be great to hear a little bit about your role. Well, I'm an independent user experience professional, so... Um, Lately, I've been working in government. I've been there about a year and a half, and um, my role at the moment is service designer. So I work on a service. Um, It's it's part of a transformation project um, where we've got one service and, and we're transforming it over onto a different platform. And in the meantime, we're making all of these improvements to the user experience and making it a better system to use. My job as service designer is to see how that product fits in with the bigger picture. So how do people become aware of the service? How do they prepare for the service? Um, How they use it and what happens when they leave? So do they need to to have support? Um, What does that support structure look like? So how, this is the million dollar question, I suppose, in many ways, Jackie, how can UX teams, uh, service designers like yourself, researchers, um, content designers, ensure they have a, the biggest impact on, on the services they're developing and, and the stakeholders and the kind of wider user groups that they're, bu- they're building services for? You, you go out and, and ask them. You, you prototype, you show, you understand how those prototypes are working for users and you come back and you iterate them Um, and then you take it out of that test environment where it works for you and your team and you put it out in the world in what we call private beta where you've got a small subset of users and you see what the impact is when you put it out in the wild and it can often be very very different from what it is in a lab environment So, and then you go out and you measure again. So how are they getting on with it? What does real life look like? Um, What are the things that you can 
can zoom in and, and bring that gives the most impact to those users. I mean, you can change loads of stuff on the surface, but what what really matters to them? And again, you're looking at you're looking at a mixture of anecdotal evidence, um, gathering information, qualitative information from lots of people and creating hypotheses and also looking at the data behind it to, to back it up and make sure that your hypotheses are correct. Um, what we really like to do is trace back to what are the benefits to the business and the user and quantify those benefits. So we will try our best to make sure that we're quantifying how many people are affected, how much it's costing, um, if it's a pain point, or how much a new feature will, will benefit the business. When I say business, I mean a, a government organisation, which isn't run like a business, but we spend money to make the products um, that we create. So the less we're spending in one area and the more we're saving, the more we've got to create additional features. Right. And you've talked about the business there, obviously the government organisation, but I know you've worked sort of both sides of the fence, if you like, both in the private sector and the public sector. What would you say is the difference in your experience of doing what you do or working in this world um, between the two different types of organisation? Government digital standards. So those are the things that were brought in. Um, it's the framework that we're working within government, which is so helpful to people in our profession. As you know, I know that you've worked in government before. So working, say, at a global bank, they do their best to make sure that they're standard space. They might have um, a part of the organisation that looks after the standards. In government, we're really held to account. We go through assessments um, in which we are made accountable and those assessments are published. Um, and we... I guess in the UX profession, we work to that framework and it's so helpful to us because sometimes user experience is the first thing to go, to be let go. So having that set of guidelines that we can work to and say, yes, but we're not fulfilling this. We're not working across organisational boundaries and, and we have to, or we're not understanding user needs and we have to. That's that's great for us because it gives us leverage to be able to do the things that we're being paid to do, really. Um, just taking a step back, thinking about kind of Jackie and her career, if you like, talk me through how you got to where you are. When I was at school, I think I was perhaps a year above when they started doing computer science and teaching coding. So I missed all of that. You know, it wasn't computers weren't really part of my school life so ending up in digital was quite unexpected for me I did an, a degree in English literature um, and when I came out it was the middle of a recession and I probably worked in in most of the the offices in Winchester answering phones and doing typing um, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do I knew that I enjoyed uh, literature and writing so I, I applied in those days you used to get the guardian and look in the the job ads and so I was applying for things like um, working in publishing 
So when I was working in an office, I ended up at this place called MBA Systems, um, who, who did financial systems. And I never really got to grips with what that part of the, 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 the business actually did. But I was working there as a receptionist for a week as a temp. And the, the boss said, oh, we've got a job as a receptionist. Do you want to apply for it? Give, give me your CV. I was like, I will give you my CV, but that's not really what I want to do. And he looked at my CV and he said, oh, I see you've got a degree in art. And I thought, well, actually, on my CV, it doesn't say that I've got a degree in art. I've got a foundation certificate in art and design, but I've got a degree in English literature. But I went along with it. And uh, and he said, well, have you heard of the internet? And I said, yeah, my dad's got it. And I didn't really know what it was. Um, and he says, well, we need a web designer. Do you think you could do that? So I said, yeah, why not? So I got a couple of books and, um, and I started that job um, as a web designer. And I learned how to do HTML. And we were creating brochure sites for financial companies just as a sort of sideline, really, it was just, say, five or six pages to put their brochure online. So the design was already done, really. Um, and I was using, oh, my goodness, tables within tables within tables just to try and get all the layout made. We didn't have CSS in those days. Um, but we did an okay job of it. And, and that part of the business really started to build. And as it went on, we got more and more sort of functionality that was fed through from the other part of the business, like the financial information. I mean, it became more more than a brochure page. It became a thing that did something. Um, so that's how I started out in in web design as a web designer. And um, in terms of kind of your route from there to where you are now, you've done a bunch of roles, both, as I said before, kind of public sector and private sector, haven't you? And, and where do you see yourself going in the next years it's it's been interesting I've always ended up I've been lucky because I've always been at the sort of forefront of, of what's been going on just because I started off so early um, I was working um, I went to London and I worked doing the dot-com boom for a lot of actual financial um, journalism sites I ended up working at Reuters um, as their as their web designer um, and I I got made redundant from Reuters and with that redundancy money, I went off and I did um, a, a master's in research at Lancaster in something called the Design and Evaluation of Advanced Interactive Systems, which was essentially a, a user experience um, master's. And it taught me how to do research. And from then I went and worked at a consultancy and then they took me and turned me from somebody who had been a web designer into a consultant and it opened up this whole new world. It's like, how do I deal with clients? How do I make people understand what's in my head? Um, and, and how do I kind of sell that bigger picture? It gave me so many skills to work for a consultancy and go through all of the training um, that they give you. I was really lucky to have that. And that's kind of that was a real pivot point for me. It kind of shaped the person that I am. So I then was able, once I left there, to go into an organisation, not as a contractor who is told what to do, here's a job and this is what you need to do, but as an independent consultant who could go in, identify what needed to be done, and then 
say, okay, so what I'm going to do for you is this, 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 and this, and this will be the outcome. Um, I just feel really lucky that I'd had that. I wasn't a typical consultant. I didn't, I only lasted two or three years, but those are the skills that I picked up from it. Um, so from then on, it was really about kind of, it gave me the ability to to pick and choose the jobs that I was doing because I, I know that I really enjoy the experience of, of working as a user-centered designer, working with users. Um, it's, it's a pleasure to go into work and do that um, and, and have a, an outcome that you know is, is kind of something that is useful to people. Um, so I enjoy working in commercial, but I also enjoy working in government because designers love constraints and government and the standards that we work within give um, some, get, some great constraints, which actually can help me be more creative in the solutions that I'm giving. Yeah, I really like that. That's absolutely true. I, yeah, I agree with all of that. So what advice, Jackie, then, or tips would you give to somebody wanting to get into this world? If someone came sort of coming in your footsteps and said, I want to, I want to end up where you are, what would you say to them? Um, I mean, it's when you talk to anybody in user experience, it's funny, they, they tend to come in different routes they'll often switch from something like maybe as a developer um, or a business analyst. Um, I was speaking to somebody the other day who switched from a teacher, from a journalist. So the thing that switched them into user experience, I think, was that interest in there must be more to this, to what whatever it is that I'm creating and doing. Why do people do what they do? How can how can I help? And somehow they'll switch into that kind of research track. Getting into user experience in a in a kind of traditional way, you would probably go and get a related degree, maybe psychology or computing. And then you would try to go through the graduate track, um, either to um, a consultancy, like one of the big consultancies has um, a, a, the whole field of, of user experience professionals in there, um, or one of the independent agencies, um, you would try and get in on their, their graduate track. Um, I think that if you, if you were in a career which is kind of related to digital and you wanted to switch to user experience, what you need to show is that you are interested and, and you are a self-starter. So if you're a developer, you would be going out and working with user researchers. Or if you didn't have a user researcher, you just do some research of your own and do some recordings and, and form some conclusions and then take them out or, or do something. I mean, if you were, if you were doing a, a blog or a, you can do a blog or a podcast or put something out on social media, um, just test something, experiment with something and put it out there. And then you can build a portfolio of things, which you might not have got paid to do. Um, but you can show to an agency who is taking on kind of new recruits. Um, I think that it would be a shame if you would 
providing that service and not getting paid for it. So obviously, if you've got a job as a developer, you're getting paid for that. And this is value added. This is extra. But everybody needs to pay the rent and put money on the table. Um, and not everybody has the opportunity to do unpaid work. And you talked before about um, <clears throat> what you really like about th- this world in terms of kind of obviously creating um, services that are beneficial to users. I'm interested to know the flip side of that. What frustrates you or challenges you um, or annoys you kind of day to day, week to week in terms of this world and what you do, if, if anything? I'm, I mean, I'm pretty old now and, and long in the tooth. So... The things that I used to find frustrating, like meeting a brick wall for something I knew was important for the user, I don't find as bad anymore because I have ways to cope with that. Not everything can be done at once. yeah. So not every problem can be solved immediately. And actually not every problem can be solved. What I do to tackle that is to make sure that if I've identified a risk that users can't get what they want, or maybe there's a clinical risk that they can't get access to the data they need. I'm putting that in front of the right people. I'm escalating it and I'm getting it on a risk log. So I'm putting it in out out and giving it visibility. And at that point, if that doesn't get taken up, I know that I've done everything that I can possibly do. I think what frustrates me is when people don't take sometimes when people don't take no for an answer yeah so so there might be a good business reason like we don't have enough money to tackle that yet or we need to get this thing out first and I find sometimes that less experienced maybe designers or researchers can get really upset and annoyed about that and they've got nowhere to put that emotion and frustration and 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 they've got they don't have the coping strategies to be able to say, yes, okay, even though this thing I found is important, it has to be prioritized. So I would say um, just, just having that bit of, of the bigger understanding the bigger picture that what we user experience is important, but actually creating a whole thing that gets out there is also important. So we can't prioritize one over the other. Um, and people who aren't curious as well, that kind of frustrates me. So if if they're just willing to accept something and go, oh, well, that's, that's somebody else's problem. And I'll say, okay, but whose problem is it? You know, you say that that this is an issue, you're accepting it's an issue and that it needs to be dealt with. Um, So who do I go to? Who can I take it to? Whose risk log can I put it on? And what does frustrate me is if it's like, oh, well, you know, just leave it. Where do you see your own career going? So this sounds like an interview question, doesn't it? (laughs) But like if you if you kind of think a few years ahead, where where would you like to go What I've found is that I enjoy spending a couple of years really pushing myself, going out of my comfort zone. So um, a couple of years ago, I was working as a design lead. I had 15 designers. We were working in a very high-pressure environment. And my goodness, the amount of things that I learned that I didn't know before um, about how to work with a team of people and help them, about where the money comes from, and the funding and how important it is to get the funding right in order to make um, products and to make service teams 
work effectively um how important it is to understand the the politics of what's going on um i learned a lot about supply chain um the supply of of good people and bringing them on board so that was great and i learned so much from it but it was exhausting then i took then i'm in this job which is well within my comfort zone although it is like um it's a complex product and a really complex environment i'm very happy in a in a big complex environment because i've worked in them a lot before um but i'm i'm working well within my skill set um so it's it's great for me to do that and then consolidate all the skills that i've learned um, and put them into action and then after a couple of years of that i will probably push myself a little bit further out um, and perhaps more into a, a leadership role again um, so it's that's that's the way that my career's always gone it's been kind of do the thing work really hard to learn it often it's a baptism of fire and then do some do it again right as a as a serial contractor i'm in the lucky position that i can do it again and get better at it and then do it again until i feel like i've got my skills built up and i need to do something else and then it i'll sh shift a little bit and that's you know that's a good place I think a good way to go. I don't know whether you've experienced that kind of shift in your uh, Yeah, career. I mean, it's really interesting hearing you talk about that. There's a sort of rhythm to it, isn't there? As you're sort of saying, you know, you go outside your comfort zone and you develop the skill set and then you do something that's perhaps less intense for a period of time to consolidate. And and as you say, as, as contractors, I'm on too, we have the luxury of being able to sort of pick and choose what we do and where we go. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it's really important. The, the flip side, of course, of that is, as I found in the past is you can if you're not careful end up just sort of plodding is the wrong word but you know you can keep doing what you do again and again and again and you have to keep pushing yourself that's why it's really interesting and I really like what you're saying about kind of pushing yourself out there and because it's otherwise you just stagnate there's a risk of stagnation I think uh, and particularly in the tech world everything's moving so fast you know no one can keep up with all of the all of the uh, the news and insights and technology as it's evolving um but I think, yeah, government is a, is a, I love working in government precisely because of the things you were saying earlier, you know, the service standard and, and, and the fact that you've got these multidisciplinary teams and there's usually, you know, stakeholder support and there's budget behind it and they do it right and they do it properly. Right. Last thing, Jackie, the three card challenge. So I've got three cards here. As you can see, it's fairly lo-fi. So we've got uh, an ace of hearts, a queen of diamonds and a jack of spades. And on the back of each of these, I've written either the word tool, trend, or technique. So what I'm going to get you to do is pick one of these cards to start with. Okay, Ace, Ace of Hearts. Hearts is tool. So if you can tell me what your go-to preferred favorite tool is in your kind of day-to-day, week-to-week work, and, and why. Okay, so this may surprise you, but at the moment it's Confluence and Jira. Um, so Confluence is a kind of documentation system that all our developers and business analysts and senior leaders use. And Jira is the, the kind of agile tool set, which you, you create little tickets and you move them along. Okay. We have, so as a service designer, I want to give visibility to the, the problems that 
I find. Um, and putting it in Mural or Miro is fine for, for the user-centered design team, but it doesn't get out to the developers. They don't see it. What I found was that if I turn my 80 pain points that I'm following, my 80 user pain points, into Jira tickets and put them in an epic called, called pain points, and then I put them on a confluence page, I could pull them into a sprint and show that we were solving them alongside the, um, the actual development work. I could show that they were being marked as done or still in progress. And it was a great way to, to share the ongoing progress of the service design work with people who were in different parts of the profession. And also because you see all this stuff going through Confluence, who's changed what page, what they've changed, what they're doing. It gave visibility to the senior leadership team as well. So if there's one thing that I've learned in, in this contract, it's the advantage of using Jira and Confluence to do that. As you say, often in a user-centered design world, the sort of tool of choice is Miro, but going beyond that and yeah, surfacing it to people outside our world is, is very important as well. So two more cards. A jack of spades. spades is technique. So tell me about your preferred technique. There's lots of techniques. I So I never go for any one thing. You suit the technique to the thing that you need to do. So being innovative, um, usually to do with documentation, right? So I would say as a general technique, document things. doesn't matter how you document them, but do it in a way that people can see. At the moment, I'm taking personas, um, making a little video about them, putting a, um, a QR code on a printout of the persona and sticking them up on a wall. I'm doing a poster campaign. Um, so that people can kind of see those personas and videos around the office. Um, so my technique would be documentation, but document in lots of different ways. Yeah, that, that's really nice. I like that. And the last one, trend. Now, I know sometimes we will balk against the, what is the latest, coolest trend, but if there's a trend, maybe you like it, maybe you dislike it, maybe it frustrates you. In, in... I think an interesting trend would be to get more junior permanent people within organizations so it's great that i'm employed as a consultant or contractor and there's lots of very very skilled and expensive people coming in but we also need to be bringing along the next lot of people and i've got a whole ton of stuff which is just you know really winding the handle it's kind of day-to-day -day work that i would like to be passing on to other people in the team, but we just have this lack of kind of junior people in the team that you can, it's it's not fobbing off the jobs that you don't like, it's giving people um, like really detailed work to do where they can understand the, um, the job that needs to be done, learn about it, contribute to not over, not only the software delivery life, life cycle, but making a better service. There's a whole bunch of jobs like that that I think we need to be done. And sometimes I think there's a trend towards just having contractors come in and do things and a trend away from having perm staff that we're, we're bringing along and really embedding within the organization. 
and and I'm not talking about the place where I'm working now specifically. I'm talking about actually that's a trend I've seen in commercial um, as well. Why do you think that's the case? And it's something I've noticed as well across certainly various parts of government. I I think it genuinely is a trend. It it goes in. So sometimes you see people um, and consultancies going, right, we're not having any more agency staff. We're going to build our own capability and we're going to focus on that. And then five years later, they're like, right, we it's costing us far too much money. We we can't do that. We've got to go to the, the consultancy model. It's, it's genuinely, it's a trend. I think you need a happy medium, obviously. <laughs> You're not doing just one or just the other. Oh, well, it's, it's been fascinating. So thank you indeed for, for, for taking the time to talk to me and for, for sharing all your experience and wisdom with us. Really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for listening to the Understanding Users podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, do please like or comment wherever you're listening and feel free to share it more widely. And feel free, of course, to drop me a line with any feedback via LinkedIn or my website, researchable.uk. Links are in the show notes. Join me again next time when I'll be talking to another experienced UX professional and asking them to share their wisdom, tips and knowledge and experience with me. Until then, stay safe and stay user-centred.